So here we are, Romans 9, one of the most difficult and mystifying texts in all of the Bible, some would say. I have like seen pastors uh, skip over it. And just, I'm just curious. I'm just, just totally curious. How many of you have heard a sermons, sermon on Romans 9? One person, two people, three people. Wow. That is interesting. So this is something that a lot of pastors skip over. So we go verse by verse of the Bible here. So we don't skip over verses. We go over verses. Even the hardest ones, even the toughest ones here at Corner Canyon Church. So this is known for being difficult. I, I had a friend, oh, I can't believe I'm telling this story, but I, I had a friend who would, um, would read through Romans 9 and talk about it with girls on his first date so they wouldn't get a second date with him. I had a friend who did that in college. Kind of mischievous guy, but it, you know, it, it worked a lot of the time. So this is how deep this text is and how difficult it is. People don't like looking at it. Some people not even read Romans 9, as a matter of fact. Um, so what this is getting at is what really explains you having faith and say one of your friends or a neighbor never having faith in Jesus Christ? What's the difference between the, the two of you. You might say, well, I saw that I needed Jesus. But then there's a deeper question you can ask there. Why did you see that you needed Jesus? You say, well, I just saw that I was sinful. I needed help. But why did you see that you were sinful and needed help and your neighbor didn't see that? Were you a little bit more spiritually insightful? Were you a little bit more intelligent or responsive to God's grace? Were you a little bit more spiritually sensitive and aware, just a little bit more on tune? You see, none of these are right because they all point back to us. And Paul's teaching here on election shows that we can't boast. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, which I think ties in nicely to Paul's point in some reform in Romans 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You can't point back to yourself and say, oh, well, I'm just a little bit more spiritually sensitive than my neighbor that sounds a little arrogant doesn't it and so what the reason why say you believe and say maybe your neighbor never believes is because of god's grace that's the real difference and in fact god often chooses it says here in first corinthians one first corinthians one not the greatest people imaginable not the most powerful people imaginable he chooses people who are lowly people who are the worst of the worst and their lives are changed it says in first john four we love because he first loved us. And so Romans 9, though it is difficult, though it is tough, and we're going to go through this and show how it's not as offensive as some people think it is. Though this is a tough verse, this is simply a logical outworking of Paul's teaching that we are saved by the amazing and profound grace of God that pursued us at all costs even the cost of Jesus dying on the cross for all of our sins. So this is what this is about, is God's relentless pursuit of you and, and his love for you and his grace for you. And it, it, it states it in tough ways at times, but to work it out logically, we're going to look at this here at God's word. I picked, it's on Labor Day, so, you know, it should be lighter attendance, I thought. So, you know, <laughs> go over the hardest verse on Labor Day. It's Labor Day, right? I got the right day. Okay, not Memorial. I always get those confused. Yeah. I'm reading the Bible too much, okay? I'm not paying attention to the holidays, right? Um, that could be interesting.
interpret offensively. Okay, uh, so Romans uh, 9, 1, it says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I, I were a curse or sent to hell or cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. <clears throat> My kingsmen, the Jewish people, according to the flesh. Paul was a first century Jew. So he's not cold about people going to condemnation. He's not like, oh, it's no big deal. I don't care. Some people have this very flippant attitude towards people's condemnation. Like, oh, it's, it's funny. Or they view it very lightly. And no, Paul has an ache for people. He wants people to be saved on some level. That's what God wants, as we'll see on some level. He wants people to come to him. Everybody. So Paul is expressing this anguish for people to be saved. It's not like we can say, oh, those people are going to hell, let's blow them off, those are other people. No, he has a passion to spread the gospel here. It says, they are Israelites and to bring them, belong to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There you have, Jesus has a, a human nature from from. Abraham, the Jewish line, he was a seed of Abraham, and he's also God. So here in this verse, you get that Jesus is God and man. It's like a good condensed summary of that. He is God overall because he is creator of all. He is Lord of all. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham because they are the offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, not those who are just physical that are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So you might be reading this thinking like, why is Paul going into all this? Didn't we just hear like Paul's very comforting words that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus and how great his grace is? So why does he feel the need to go into all of this stuff here? Well, the reason is, is that God made a promise to Israel. He made a promise to them and he's showing that his promises have not failed because if God's promises have failed, then that means if God promises to always love you, then that promise can fail. See, God is a promise keeping God. He's always honest. He's always reliable. He always tells the truth. So he's trying to defend the character of God saying, no, God's promises cannot and will not ever fail. So when God says he loves you unconditionally, as he does in Romans 8, and he promises to do so, his promise to you is never going to fail. It's never going to stop. It's never going to give up on you. And so Paul's point here is, yeah, even though there are physical Jews presently, that does not mean his promises have failed because the real promise to people is that, the, that those who trust in Jesus of the, of the Jews, those who believe in Christ, the promise is to them. And there's also a national promise lurking behind the corners that there is a national, we're going to see this in Romans 11, there is a national future for Israel that God will, will, will regenerate them and save Israel. And that's gonna, we're going to see that in Romans 11. But first he's saying the real promise was never to the hypocrites or the unbelievers in Israel. It is to the believers. It's not for the unbelieving Israelites. The promise that God made is to those who trust in Christ, not those who reject the Messiah. And so when he says here, not all of Israel is Israel, he means not all of Israel as a race. Not all of them are truly spiritually Israel, truly spiritually saved. It's like saying not everybody who goes to church is a Christian. 
That's what he's saying here. Just because you go to church, there are promises to the church, right? But just because you go to church doesn't mean you're automatically safe. Just because your granddad was a famous preacher or whatever, your father was a famous preacher, it doesn't matter. It, what matters is do you trust? Do you believe and receive? It doesn't matter. There's no, there's no spiritual lineage here that, that can save you if you don't trust in Christ. And so the promises to the people of God, both in the Old and the New Covenant, the promises to the people of God is for those who trust in Christ. You must do it personally. You must personally believe and receive Christ. You can't rely on being going to church every Sunday. You can't rely on your family believing. You must reach out in faith and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins. And so this is why many scholars take, the majority of them take this to be also about the national Israel situation, but it's also about individual election and choosing because it's saying salvation is promised to them, to those who believe and receive, and it's explaining why people trust in Christ. This is Romans 9, 9 through 11. For this is what the promise said. About this year, next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived of children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So then you're going to see, you know, that Jacob, God chose Jacob over Esau. And it's like, that's very offensive in that culture because you, the, older, the older brother would, would receive the blessing, not the younger. It's like the godfather picking Michael Corleone over Fredo. It's very, like, offensive. And it's all these godfather references, you know, like the godfather. So, you know, um, so it's like picking the youngest brother over the oldest here. And it's nothing to do with their works or anything. Now, the reason why this is viewed as individual election is because if you look at the language here, the terms, it says not of works and calling. And so it's not of works, neither good nor bad. Not, it's, it's about God's purpose and election. It's about calling. All of these terms throughout Romans and all of these terms throughout Romans 9 are talking about individuals having salvation. It's not giving some corporate sense of selection or election. It's talking about individual choosing of individuals who trust in Christ. And so that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. The same purpose here in 1 Corinthians 1 is here in Romans 9. is that God chooses the weak, the younger brother. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Jacob wasn't a really good guy. I mean, his name means deceiver. He like deceived his brother into giving him his birthright. Not exactly a wonderful guy. So literally, it's not because he was good that God chose him. It's because of God's grace. That's the point that Paul is trying to uh, get across here. It says here, and uh, hold on to your seats for this one. Romans 9, 12 to 13. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved but Esau hated. It's a tough verse. We're going to try to understand it in context. It's important we don't take verses out of context. Uh, people do that. I, Biola, I had a friend who, um, and I'm sorry, my friends are so mischievous. You're like, what kind of friends does this guy have, you know? But he would read this verse uh, at a Biola prayer thing where they, everybody would be praying and the, the teacher or the leader's like, shout out your favorite Bible verse. And everybody's shouting out, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know, and people are, God so loved the world, they're shouting out all these verses, you know, Biola, and my friend, who's kind of a troublemaker, let's face, this guy's kind of a troublemaker, well, he is a troublemaker, he's not kind of, he is, okay, he says, Jacob, I am loved, Esau, I hated, at this thing, and you hear like a woman go, oh, 
you know, like screech, you know, a woman in lamentation, you know, kind of thing, screeching as he reads this, you know. And so, look, if you take a verse out of context, like a five cent fortune cookie, you're going to have misunderstandings. And so you hear it. and There's kind of the shock value that goes on. But it's important to look at this in a deeper way. And thankfully, very few scholars and commentators would say that God hating Esau here refers to God like absolutely hating Esau in the sense that God hates everything about Esau and doesn't love him at all. That's not what this is saying. And the reason why we know this for sure is that there are other passages in the Bible that says God loves all persons. God loves everybody. Matthew 5, 44 through 45. And I, actually, there's really like only one guy I know uh, who's a, a scholar who would say that that refers to absolute hatred. And that's Gordon Clark. He said that. And uh, I don't think he is supported by the rest of the Bible. That's why it's important to read the Bible in its full context and not just take things out of context. Matthew 5, 44 through 45, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be be sons of your father, God, who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just as well as the unjust. So the reason why we should love our enemies, according to Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, the reason why you should love your enemies is because God loves them. God loves them. They're made in his image. He sends rain on them and helps them in many ways. So God loves them, you know, and so they're, they're, God loves everybody. Now, obviously, if you had children and you had one of your children, you know, do some really bad things, get maybe go to prison and cause some trouble, you know, and maybe he, he, he you know, burned down someone's house. I'm, I always pick those drastic examples. But, you know, you're say your, your kid does something really bad and really disgraceful and they go to prison and they're just they're in there for 30 years and it's a bad deal. You're going to hate that aspect of your kid that did those things, but you're still going to love your kid. See what I'm saying? So that's, that's the kind of like expression here that God's getting at. And it's also, it's, it's even lightened by the fact, as many scholars point out, that hate here used in the Bible does not mean complete or absolute hatred because it's actually a Jewish expression. So it's important to read not only the Bible in context, but in its historical context. It's a Jewish expression for chosen over. And some would even say love less or chosen over. You see this in Luke 14, 26 to 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, some teenagers might say, oh, this is a pretty good Bible verse, but no, it's, it's not. It's, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a good Bible verse, but, you know, the bad reading of it, right? So you want to read this in the proper way. God is not commanding people to hate their family members. That's not what it's saying. Everybody recognizes this. This is a Jewish Semitic expression for saying that we're not to love Love our family members more than God. We are to love Jesus first, and in the first century culture, that would have been defined as hatred or viewed as hatred. So we are to choose Jesus over our families, over everybody. And in Jewish first century culture, that would be like hating in a sense. And so that's how this is being used here is God choosing Jacob over Esau would amount to being choosing over. Now like the thought you have when you read that, you're like, oh my gosh, that's like still not fair. That's like really messed up. That's not fair. And it's funny that you say that and that I think that too, because that's exactly what Paul says in the next verse. So we're 
following his line of thought here in Romans 9, 14 through 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the response here is God is not unjust to choose Jacob over Esau. As many people have said, the surprising thing is not that God didn't choose Esau, but that he chose Jacob. I mean, that guy's not perfect at all. That's a shocking thing, is that God would love any sinner. That's a, that's a context here, is that we're all sinful. And so, if God were going to be fair and give justice, he would have given that to, the justice both to Jacob and both to Esau. But Jacob, I mean, as I said, he wasn't the greatest guy. He was a liar. I mean, he, he, I read Genesis, and I kind of feel bad for Esau, you know? But, I mean, later on, he does some bad stuff. But um, it, he gets his brother out of his birthright. He's a deceiver. But God, out of sheer grace and mercy, gives this to Jacob. And this is why Paul says here, I will have mercy on whomever I will. So if God chose Jacob, it would have been mercy. And if God had chosen Esau, it also would have been mercy. It isn't about fairness. And besides, God defines what's fair. God defines what's right. He is the foundation of rightness and fairness. So ultimately, we have no right to question his rightness or fairness. He is the Lord. But I, I get it. Like, I still feel this way, and I'm sure you might feel this way too. Like, this feels weird. This feels unfair. And that's the thought I have. But I think one of the things we have to realize, again, remembering the larger context of the Bible, is that we are sinners fallen in Adam. We're not perfect. We can't be perfect for more than 10 minutes. So if God were going to show anybody gra grace and mercy, that's great. But if he just shows us justice, he's not being unfair. I like the way John Stout puts it when he says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur. It doesn't follow logically, but it's not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with a sinner is not justice, but mercy. So let me give you an example, and we all know how I have the most extreme examples following people burning down houses, you know, so, and churches too, right? So this is my extreme example, okay? And this is, there's a point to this. This is going to tie in to how we relate to God. So if there were a group of guys that tend, that burned down your house and killed your family, and you were the judge at their trial, and out of those 10 guys, you let nine of them free and you punish one, no one's going to say you're doing anything wrong and unfair. If anything, you're going to say, like, you should punish those guys. That's what you would say. But if I show mercy and kindness to nine of them, they burn down my house. They've killed my family. They don't deserve mercy, but yet that's how mercy and grace is. So you're like, well, come on, Nate. What is the point of this, like, excessively harsh, like, illustration? Why are you using this harsh analogy? Well, I don't think we fully understand that God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely just and righteous. And we have sinned against God. And our sins are not like, oh, it's no big deal. We have sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. We have sinned against the greatest being. We deserve the greatest punishment. We have committed, all of us in Adam, have committed cosmic treason against God. 
And so instead of punishing the whole world, what God has done in the Bible is save the world, the vast majority of the world. He doesn't just select a few chosen people. God so loved the world. That's what John 3.16 says. He loves people. He loves the world. And in his amazing kindness and grace, he continues to save tons and tons of people. And I do believe the vast majority, the vast majority of the human race. And it's God's grace that pursues us. This is what Romans 9.16 says, the next verse. So then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So this verse is saying that human beings have a will. We're not robots. We're not automatons or puppets. God's not like a master of puppets, as some have misconstrued. We have a will and we make real decisions. We make real choices. The point is that Paul is trying to say here is that grace and salvation ultimately do not depend on human will. It ultimately depends on the mercy and kindness of God. And Paul is trying to preserve the idea of absolute, complete, and utter, 100% pure grace and love for us. A unilateral, one-way love towards us. That doesn't depend on us, but it depends on God. Goes on in Romans 9, 17 through 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So this may seem, I mean, it's very difficult teaching to accept, I would say. It's, it's, but I think it, it helps to understand the larger context of Romans and the Old Testament a book, which is, which is it's quoting from Exodus. It becomes easier to understand once you look at that. So first off, this is a citation of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And uh, the first two times, it says that, yeah, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But directly after that, what I find so interesting, and you're going to see this as we go through Romans 10, is that side by side parallel, you have God's sovereignty, and then you have human choices, free will, and moral responsibility. And there's always side by side in the Bible. Exodus 7, 3 says, but I will Harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, so he's raising up Pharaoh to show his signs and everything. But look what it says in the very next chapter. It's amazing. It says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So for God and the authors of the Bible, there is no incompatibility between God's sovereignty. And free will. There's not like a, a, a tension here. They're not against each other. They run parallel to one, to one another. The Bible, human choice and God determining certain choices are compatible. This is not some like strange view that only like people holding the Bible have to hold to. Most philosophers, secular philosophers, people don't even believe in God. They would say that, yeah, that, that, uh, that free will choices are compatible with, with, with predestination, God choosing, uh, determinism. It's compatible with all of these things. The vast majority of secular philosophers are compatibilists. They would say free will is compatible with, with, with things being determined in some sense. Not everything that's determined is free. Of course, puppets and robots are not free. They don't have choices. But, but with, with God has a certain way of doing things. And it, that, that could be mysterious. I, I grant that. So, so yeah, this is not just something that Christians believe. And one of the top philosophers in the world, Peter Van Inwagen, says no matter what view you hold of free will, we don't fully understand it. It's mysterious. It's difficult to understand. So at the end of the day, I want to trust God and his word, not people who can't figure it out. I mean, that's, that's God's infinite. I trust his word. He's showing himself to be reliable over and over again in my life. 
I really like the way that Calvary Chapel pastor Skip Heisig puts it about Romans 9 and the mystery of free will and God choosing us. He says, no matter how you look at this doctrine of election, it is hard to get your mind around it. Kind of with him this morning, aren't we? You're like, oh boy. It is hard to figure out how God can predetermine and elect you before you were born and then demand that you make a choice to follow him after you were born. He chooses us, but then he says, you must choose him. The Bible says both are true. God elects us, but tell, then tells us to select him. He predestines us and calls, but then he, he has you decide to believe him. How does that work? They do not contradict each other. They are happening at the same time. Hang in there with me. This is a lot, I know. So I think he's right. It's amazing. God has amazing grace for us. He, he loves us and chooses us. And yet, what you're going to see when we look through Romans 9 is immediately after Romans 9, it talks about how strong, how powerful God's sovereignty and control is. Immediately after this chapter, it talks about, without any reference to sovereignty, to confess with your mouth, the mouth that mouse, confess with your mouth. It's like, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It says to believe in Jesus, that you cannot respond to the gospel unless you, you hear by faith. That's what this is saying here. So, I mean, you know, people say, well, I don't know how they work out. Well, in Paul's mind, he had no problem. He says, yeah, God's sovereign. And the very next chapter, he's like, you've got to believe in Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus. And that's your responsibility to do so. And yeah, I mean, you can work it out or not. It can be mysterious to you. But I don't think there's any clear logical problem between these two. There is no issue in saying that a, a person, you know, rejects God and then God using that for his plan, which is what happens with Pharaoh here. I mean, I hate to break it to you. It's not like Pharaoh was like some great guy. Like he's like, you know, Mother Teresa or he's like uh, Mr. Rogers. Like he's just some terrific guy. Like that Pharaoh, I want to hang out with him. You don't want him to watch your kids because he enslaved an entire race of people and then murdered their babies. Not exactly your example of a wonderful guy, you know. Let's have him watch the children, honey. No, bad guy, evil guy, right? And what God is doing here is he's using his wickedness for his plan. He was already wicked before and he freely chose. God didn't make him into like a robot, like, you know, popping away. Boop, 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 boop. No, no. He was already freely wicked and then God used his wickedness as a part of his plan. To glorify and to uh, magnify his goodness and for a greater good. This is not something I'm making up. Look at what it says in Romans 1, 24 to 25. God does not make people evil. God's not like, you know, programming us like robots and master puppets, you know. I always say master puppets. I love Metallica, so that's why it's in my, not puppet, yeah. So, but yeah, the thing is here is that, yeah, in Romans 1, it says that unbelievers... That God does not make them hard. He lets them merely go on with their choice of rejecting and rebelling against God. So it's not like God is making people evil or making people bad. No, they were already bad and God uses that. It says in Romans 1, 24 through 25, Therefore God gave them up. That's how he hardens. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. He allows it. He doesn't make it. He's, al he's allowing that as part of his plan to the hearts, to the purity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth of, about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
So he doesn't create rebellion and hardness. He merely confirms their decision. He stops using his grace to restrain them and just lets them go hog wild on their sin. That's what this is saying with Pharaoh. That's what it's saying in Romans 1. That's how God does it. He lets the person go under their own destruction because they're choosing it. I love the way the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it about Romans 9 in relation to Romans 1. He says, The world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it. If God were not restraining things, things would be worse than they are right now. Let me tell you. And this world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence at any point, there is a hardening there. So that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. So God does not make anybody evil. He doesn't have to do that. People will automatically act evil, they'll rebel. But you see, God, in his kindness and grace, he uses their evil, their wickedness, and rebellion for a greater good. Such that if he did not allow that evil, a greater good would not be accomplished. He uses that. Romans 9.19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The idea here is that if someone, you know, is, is giving into their sin and God uses somebody for that, like, so why does God punish me for that? If God's using my, my, my sin and my rebellion for his greater good, then, then why is he punishing me for that? And if you think about this, God's will is irresistible, surely, but it's still compatible with free will. When I saw my wife when I first met her, she was irresistible. I'm like, I'm going to marry this woman. Couldn't resist her. She was irresistible to me, right? But I still wasn't like all of a sudden I was like, I'm a robot. Yes, I, I do. Although I was pretty nervous at the wedding and I, my wife comments like, you did kind of sound like a robot because you were so mechanically reading the vows. I'm like, I was nervous. And I slept an hour before. What would you expect, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you were to put a plate of carne asada fries, which I'm dieting right now, I desperately want, uh, honestly, really, or a plate of fish, which I hate fish. It smells like um, the sewage, the sewage, uh, you go to a restaurant before and like they have like that weird sewage smell and you walk in. That's what Smith, that's what fish smells like to me. So I, 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 if I had an option between carne asada fries and fish, which I hate. I know, I'm, I know some of you like fish. I'm sorry, okay. I would irresistibly choose the carne asada fries every single time. You roll back time a hundred times, I'm picking the fries. I mean, fish nauseates me. If I, if I tell, if I can figure out if my steak was cooked next to a fish, I can taste it and I send it back. That's how deep this hatred goes for fish. By the way, that has nothing to do with the sermon. Sorry, I got off track there. <laughs> but so, yeah, and so the fact that God's will and him letting you go, that can be irresistible. You still do what your deepest desires are. You still do what you want. And the point here Paul is making is that it can't be forgotten. No one can resist the will of an infinite being. So God has the right to judge you. God has the right to judge you if you sinned and rebelled against him. We have no excuse. Paul says in Romans 9, 20 through 21, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So the point of all of this is God is on a completely different level than us. God isn't trying to be mean and nasty here. Like, 
don't ask questions, you're dumb. He's not saying it like that. Uh, that's not the intention. We are not the same thing as God. God is totally different. He's transcendent. God is a different species than we are, totally. He is the creator. He is infinite. We are the creature. We are finite. And to borrow Paul's analogy here, we are molded. He's a molder. He is a potter. We are the clay. So God is on a totally different level than we are at, an infinitely greater level than we are at. We are finite. He is infinite. I remember when Abigail was one and a half, what she would do, I mean, she would always grab sharp knives from the dishwasher. My wife would have it out, and Abigail would walk on over and try to grab all the sharp knives. I'd be like, no, don't do that. Now, I, I can't sit down with my daughter and give her like, here's some philosophical reasons why you can't grab knives. She was one and a half. The only word she understood was no. Okay, don't touch that. I can't sit down. Let us reason together and have a philosophical discussion as to why you shouldn't grab knives. I just said, don't touch it. It's bad. Okay, so that's kind of what God is, is doing here. It's like, yeah, you don't know. I'm infinite. So, yeah, if that happens with me and my daughter, you think that happens with us and God sometimes, that we can't understand what's going on in the infinite mind of God? Yeah, I think so. We lack the cognitive equipment to, to fully understand God. We will, when we're in heaven... For billions of years, we'll still never fully understand God because we are still finite and he is still infinite. And that's God's response to Job. He's like, you have no idea what's going on here. I created everything. You're not even on my same level. So, like, I mean, sometimes God just has to say, no, don't do that. Because if you were to explain it, you wouldn't understand it. You lack the cognitive capacity to understand an infinite being just like an ant lacks the cognitive capacity to understand us. And God is infinite. We are finite. And so the same is here for Romans 9. God is doing what he is doing. And we don't fully understand. But we, what we do know is that God's mercy and his love and his kindness are so great it's hard for us to imagine. You know, God is not up there like some sort of cosmic dictator. This is not what the Bible teaches. But some people put it this way, like, okay, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, this one stays and this one goes. Like he's some like, you know, evil despot just picking, okay, I'm going to create a world and I'm only going to pick a few people and everybody else is going to hell. That's not the God of the Bible. Isaiah 53 says he died for many, not a few. God so loves the world, not just a few select people, Right. No, he loves the world. Romans 11, which we're going to see, is about God's amazing, gracious, incomprehensible plan to save the vast majority of humanity. And we don't fully understand the divine mind, the divine intellect here, but Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all the disobedience. That's a tough one, but look at the next section. That he may have mercy on all. Now, we do know that there are people that reject Christ and don't go to heaven, but all here is used because God has love for many, many people. You're going to be surprised when you die and go to heaven, you and you see people there. There's going to be a lot of people. A lot of people can, can pull an Anakin Skywalker, right? They can change at the last minute. You don't know. God is kind and saves tons of people. And it says, oh, going on, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So God's plan here is to work out and shows love and grace and mercy to the world, even though we are disobedient and sinful, and even though people rebel against him, he still uses it as part of his plan for his glory. 
It's hard, as I say, this is hard to understand. We are not infinite. But we can trust God's word here in Romans 9 even if we don't know the good reasons for what God has. Romans 9, 22 through 26. What if God, desired, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? People forget about the part where it says patience here. Patience, kindness, towards vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles, people who he saved from both nations. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Gentiles here. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. I was watching... Um, Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan experience and he had that Megan Phelps lady from the Westboro Baptist Church you know that crazy like, kind of religious cult that they have weird signs at people's funerals you guys know what I'm talking about? does anybody know the Westboro Baptist Church? yeah okay I see some hands okay it's a little out there let me just say those people so that's a hate organization just if you didn't know it's, and it's a very very bad organization but anyway she talks about how she left that church for a good reason but she left Christianity altogether because of this verse she misread it she, she thought this was saying that this verse is saying that God creates people so that he can send them to hell and in fact, what's interesting, it's universally recognized by all commentators, and you can look at this in English, you can even see it, is that God is not mentioned as the one preparing them for destruction. He's not mentioned here. There is no agency, as all commentators recognize, there is no agency ascribed from God here to the people preparing themselves for destruction. And so he does this to express here, hey, you know, these people, they have ultimately sinned by their own decision. God did not create them or push them off the cliff, as so to speak. That's not how God is. He's like, oh, I'm going to create you and just send you to hell. That's not how it is. And if you read the text, it's very hard to make God the subject here because he's the one having patience and kindness towards them. He loves them even though they are preparing themselves for destruction. They prepared themselves, hardened themselves for their rejection of God. I love the way John Stott puts it when he writes in Romans 9, if anybody lost, the blame is theirs. And if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. The antinomy contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. This means if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning and you have faith in Him, that means that God has chosen you. But if you reject him, that is your own choice. That is your own free choice to do so. So when you make a choice to follow Jesus, thank, thank God for that. Not yourself, thank God. But if you reject Christ, who's to blame for that? It's you. You chose it. You wanted it. And there will be a part of God who, who doesn't want you to go to hell. There is a part of God, even if you choose to go there, He doesn't want you there. Matthew 25 says, Hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. Not for people. God wants people to be saved. That is His heart. He wants all to come to repentance. That's His desire. Now, if we do listen to God and we do believe in Jesus Christ and you are saved, 
then what we have to realize is it's not our, oh, we were just a little bit more spiritually aware than our neighbor. Oh, I'm a little bit better than my neighbor. I was able to, you know, get, get, get in and figure it out that I'm sinful, I'm messed up, I'm more insightful than my neighbor. That's why I believe and he does not. But you see, the reason when you believe in Christ, when you trust in Jesus Christ, the, who you should be thanking for that, not yourself, you should be thanking God. Because it's His grace, it's His mercy that has overcome and pursued you despite your rebellion, despite your hatred and rejection of God. It's God who pursues you. The hound of heaven has a one-way love for you that pursues you and loves you. I love the way that Greg Foster captures this in his book, and it's the best illustration I've seen of the beauty of the sovereign love of God. And it's quite lengthy, but I, I think it's worth reading the whole thing. And um, we have some people that are getting married in here, so um, hopefully you don't, you don't uh, fall into this girl's accident. It's pretty interesting, but... Um, uh, yeah, I'll read it. Once upon a time, a young man met a young woman, and the two of them fell in love. After a giddy and exciting courtship bringing, brimming with anticipation, the young man resolved to ask the young woman to marry him. He spoke to her father, acquired the ring, planned out the most romantic possible setting for the proposal. That's why it, takes, it took me a long time to ask my wife to marry, because I could never figure out the best setting. So, you know, if you ever have a, a guy who's slow with that, I, a man, I always wanted to find the best possible thing, but this guy, I guess, did a pretty good job, per the story. Invited her to meet him there. Now, the young woman studied chemistry, and on that morning of the day on which the young man was planning to propose marriage, she was visiting pharmaceutical plan to learn about its processes. Succumbed to temptation because she was curious, she tampered with the machines. In her desire to learn more about them, she was exposed to a toxic chemical. She was immediately thrown into a state of deranged madness. She hated everyone in the world, most especially the young man who, who loved her. Later that day, when the young man asked her, will you marry me? She denounced him in rage of cursing and swearing. She was brought in for treatment, but the doctors could not help her. They announced her condition irreversible and untreatable. Her madness grew worse and worse until she would physically attack anyone who approached her. Before long, she was confined to an asylum, kept in restraints at all time. There she lay for years and years, strapped to a gurney, endlessly raging and cursing against the world and the young man. Now, the young man was like the, uh, was, was like the young woman, young and very intelligent and spirited. He dropped out of law school to study medicine, becoming a doctor. Working day and night for years, at long last, he discovered a way to cure her condition. From the, from the instant he entered her cell, so he's got the cure now, he enters the cell, she screamed imprecations at him more horribly than any she had ever uttered in all the years of her madness. When they removed her arm and restrained to administer the injection and the cure, she seized the front of his throat and plunged her fingernails in as deeply as she could. The wounds on the young man never healed. As he administered the injection, she began screaming, no, 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 over and over and over again. But the treatment worked, and when she woke up the next day, she came to herself. When he walked into her cell to see how, how, how she was. She ran to him crying, yes, yes, and they wept and they embraced. He nursed her back to health and they were at long last married in a ceremony 
that captured the attention of the world. When the minister had pronounced them man and wife, the husband leaned in to kiss her, and, and, and she whispered, thank you that your love was stronger than my hate. Thank you that your love was stronger than my hate. And so that's the love at which God pursues us. Maybe pursuing you this morning, if you trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ, then his sovereign love has overcome you. Overcome your hate, your rebellion, your sin, and he loves you for you. Not what you can do or achieve or accomplish. He loves you for you. So that is a great joy of the sovereign love. That gives us humility at the same time. It has nothing to do with us. It has to do with God and God who has mercy and kindness and grace to us. Now, as I said, the Bible teaches, it commands everywhere that people should trust and believe in Jesus. The Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that whoever shall believe in him. There's commands in the Bible that tells you to, to repent and believe all around. But what's really interesting is that when you believe in Jesus... That's, that's when you know that you're chosen since the foundation of the world. One of the best illustrations I've heard is that you're walking through a, a hallway with many doors. And upon one of the doors, you see, Whoso, whosoever shall will come to me. You walk through that door. You come and you see a nice table, an amazing table. And, and it's got food on there. It's a big banquet, big banquet table. And your name is on there. Say, Nate Taylor for me, right? And you look around, and above the door you walk through, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's how this works. And I think it's the best illustration to capture the beauty of this. Because Jesus says, if you come to him, he will never cast you out. He will never reject you. And so if you come to Jesus this morning, say, well, maybe I'm not chosen. No, no, no. If you come to Jesus this morning, that's proof that you were chosen. And if, if you know that God has been pursuing you despite your hatred, your sin and rebellion, come to him this morning, trust in him, believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. For whosoever will, and you look around and you were chosen before the foundation of the world, and his love is greater than all your sin. Let us pray.